Ecclesiastes 3.1, there is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart, a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there for a worker from that which he, is, he toils? I have seen the task that God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. We'll read into verse 11. And he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also said eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Try and see how far we can get with Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's interesting because Solomon is going to get into the issues of life and timing as he deals with certain things. And one of the things that he focuses on in this chapter is going to be the issue of injustice. How do we make sense of that if God is in control of everything? But I wanted to begin this morning with that profound thinker and deep philosopher, the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland. He made this statement, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. This is a profound truth, is it not? But this is what he says to Alice, and this is the secular world in which we live. You find that this is how they focus on life. They don't know where we came from. They don't know why we're here, and they don't know where we're going. But at the same time, they want to take everyone else along for the ride. In other words, they are on the road to nowhere, and they want us to join them. Solomon's going to make this progression for us as he moves into chapter 3 and following. God is now in the picture for him. And he understands that there is meaning to life, but there's also mystery. There are things that we cannot explain. One of the things that I know that we all wrestle with is the issue of injustice in the world. We see these things happen. We know that, that justice is good and we should speak for justice and desire justice, but yet it doesn't always come when we think it ought to come. And sometimes in contemplating these things, there seems to be these enigmas, things that we cannot explain, things that don't make sense to us. Times in which we ask God, when, when are you going to act? And Solomon is going to help us to understand how to face that. And he even deals with the issue of injustice and how do we respond to it. And verse 18, I suggested that you ponder on this verse. I said to myself concerning the sons of man, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. Now this is a part of his answer to the issue of injustice in the world. How do we see this? 
I begin with verse 11, though, as we walk through this next section of chapter 3 together. And he said, He has made everything appropriate, beautiful in its time. Now just think about that word everything. We'll come back to this, but everything, everything, everything. He goes on to say, He has planted eternity in the human heart, and even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. The Hebrew word that he uses here is to find out thoroughly. We can search, but we can't attain everything. We cannot fathom everything about God, nor the way that God works. And this is really the thing that he ponders on in verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. In other words, whatever he does is final because there is nothing you can add to it. There is nothing you can take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. There are things about God as I contemplate them that they make my soul shudder. And they ought to. The concern for us is when they don't. And Solomon is going to take us there, so he lays on this, this amazing poem dealing with the issue of time. This is a very helpful passage because you cannot miss where the focus is. Every single line has the word time in it, so we know what the theme is. But then he moves into the message of the poem, and there are several things that he is going to remind us of and help us to understand in verses 9 through 22. And the first thing is this, that in life there is work to do. He, he establishes this in verses 9 and 10. He talks about the fact that we have toil, and that there is the worker, and he seeks to, to have some gain from what he does. In verse 10 he's going to talk about the task which God has given to us. This is a different kind of work. This is a work of trying to understand the meaning of life. And really, if people stop and think about it, they really want to understand the place that they fit in life. They want to know their part in the plan of life. But we are living in a world that's rejecting the fact that there is even a plan to life, that there is even order to life. You can be anything, do anything you want. We are living in an age, especially here in America, where we are starting to see hedonism completely take over. Thus, we have anarchy in cities. This is what happens. thought to ponder from this passage that Solomon will carry into chapter 4 is the thought is this, outlook has a bearing on outcome. How we see life, how we understand life. And so he wants us to first look above as he brings God into the purview of our, our focus. He wants us to look within. He wants us to look ahead. And then in chapter 4, if you want to read ahead, he wants us to look all around us. See the things that are happening in the world around you. And this is the beautiful thing about this journey is that Solomon doesn't avoid reality. He deals with reality. He doesn't turn away from the hard questions and the difficult things. He, he faces them head on and we get to take this journey with him. But one of the things that he wants to remind us of the fact is that gain is what is desired, but it's hard to find. And part of it's because of our focus. In the first couple chapters, everything was under the sun, but now he changes his outlook. And now he's not merely looking just under the sun, now he's looking under heaven. And this is going to carry on into chapter 5, because he's going to talk about the fact that God resides in heaven, and you are on earth, therefore you better be careful how you approach him and how you speak to him. This has been a thing that's always concerned me as a believer, is the fact that, that there are those who feel like they can say anything they want to in any way to God. 
But I'm often reminded in the psalmist how I'm allowed to approach God and how I can speak to God and the things that I can say to God. And it isn't that we can't bring our hurts and woes and trials to God. That isn't the point. But sometimes we forget that we're talking to God. It's like I say to my boys, I'm not one of your friends. I'm not one of your buddies. I'm your dad. So you don't talk to me like I'm one of your friends. But sometimes this is how we approach God. So the preacher here adjusts his sights and he's no longer looking under the sun, but he is looking under the heavens and he is going to focus on the fact that this is something that we need to understand because under the sun, if that's merely how we see life, the world around us is bankrupt. And therefore, if you seek for meaning and you seek for understanding in these things, you will not find it there. You will find it nothing but emptiness for you. So man must have more than a horizontal look on life. We must look upward towards God. We must fear Him and we must trust Him. And those things that we can't explain, I often have to stop and ask myself, do I trust Him? Even though I don't understand what's going on now, even though I don't understand how this is going to work out ultimately in his plan, do I trust God? It's that simple song we sing as kids, right? And, and some of those songs are the most profound things we've ever sung in our life. Trust and obey. <laughs> Just trust God and do what he tells you to do and leave the God things to God. <laughs> But sometimes we have a problem dealing with that. So Solomon changes his perspective here. Eight times he refers to Elohim. And he's going to help us understand that life without God has no meaning. You can't turn your back on God and then seek to find purpose and meaning in life. It's impossible, he says. I've tried that and I've already laid out my course in the first two chapters. I've looked for everything under the sun. I've sought everything from pleasure to possession to everything else. And I have found that it is wanting. To put it in his own words, in chapter 2, and verse 20, he says, Therefore... Literally, I have turned my heart to despair of all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored under the sun. I have found nothing but pain, as he goes on to say in the verses that follow in chapter 2. I have found nothing but pain and anxiety and restless nights. I cannot sleep. I found no answer. I found no satisfaction. I found nothing to be content in. So he helps us to understand that confidence and, and man-based achievements, they're empty. And earthly goals in and of themselves, they are dissatisfying. They are empty. They bring nothing to our life ultimately if we cannot see how this fits in the plan of God. This is a part of something that God is doing. And when I view my work that way, that is what gives it worth. That is what gives it value. We as believers know that when you go to the job, it's not just a job. It's your mission field. <laughs> it's where you're doing ministry. It's where you live out the life of the cross, the cruciform life, as we reflected earlier. Not only that, but in chapter 3, verse 10, he's going to recall the divine given quest for meaningfulness. This is restating what he has already stated in chapter 1, verse 13. But he says these things that we occupy ourselves with, we try to explain these things. We seek understanding in life. We seek meaning in life. This is a pursuit that God has given us to do. We go after this, but understand this, that we will not always succeed in this. 
There are enigmas. There are things that we cannot explain. There are things that are unresolved, these anomalies that we find in life. There is uncorrected justices, injustices that happen in the world. We see this. And Solomon is going to tell us how to face this, but we see these things. And we have to remember that God is infinite and we are finite. So for me to try and understand the mind of God and everything in the world, it's going to be impossible. Because the finite cannot completely take in the infinite. But I have to remind myself, God is God. I am not. He's the controller of time and the events that are happening in the world. I just need to do what I need to do and be faithful to that. And trust the things that I don't comprehend and trust the things that I don't have to have control over. I just need to walk by faith, not by sight, and know that God is in control. And this is the affirmation that we get from this chapter. God is in control. It may seem like your life at this moment in time may seem like it's in chaos, or maybe it's not. But either way, God is in control of it all. Therefore, when we come to these enigmas in our lives and these injustices that we see around us, we need to leave them in the hands of God, that He will resolve them, that He will correct them, that there is a timing, Solomon says in verse 17, there is a time even for that. There is a season for judgment. There is a season in which God is going to right every wrong. This is the affirmation by the Psalms that I so enjoyed going through the Psalms and realizing this truth was the fact that when God sets everything right, that means that He is going to make everything known clear to everyone. In other words, if someone slanders you and they tell lies about you and you want so badly to have vindication in this life, guess what? It's going to come. It may not come now, but it is going to come. But God will make everyone know what the truth is. That's a part of his establishing justice in the world and righting these wrongs and setting these things right. So if we in faith accept life as a gift from God, as Solomon is going to repeat over and over through Ecclesiastes from here on out, then we need to thank him for that. And therefore we will have a better attitude when we face the burdens that come our way in life. However, if we accept our life begrudgingly, And we look at the things that come into our life and we have this grumbling and groaning spirit about us as we face these things. Then we are going to miss the gifts that come our way in life. Sometimes we're so caught up in the moment instead of just letting it surrendering it over to the Lord and knowing that he's in control. And instead of surrendering that over, we complain and we grumble and we gripe and on and on we go and we fail to see the gifts that he gives us in those moments because we're so caught up in complaining. And I know, right, we all do this. I do this. I miss those blessed treasures so often when I'm caught up in the things of life and the miseries of the world and the things that I can't answer and the things that I can't control and I want to control them and I miss those beautiful moments that I have so often because I can't just let God be God and me do what I need to do. The other thing that Solomon reminds us in starting in verse 11 that in life there is beauty to admire. 
He has made everything appropriate or beautiful in its time. God's disposal of times is beautiful. It's a source of delight. It ought to be. We ought to rejoice in these things that we see, but I have to just stop and ask this question. Can we believe the word everything in this verse? Everything. Everything. That means war and peace. Everything. Not only can we believe it, do we believe it? Do I believe that God is in control of everything? And that it is appropriate and it is beautiful according to His design? And I can see it this way. Do I believe that? Do I trust Him when He tells me these things? Again, trust and obey. Preacher Solomon says, do not, he's not telling us to do not be worried, be happy. Hakuna Matata, right? Swahili, don't worry, be happy. This isn't what he is saying. This isn't looking for the silver lining. What's being promoted here is faith in God, not faith in faith. Mm-hmm. Or as Oprah Winfrey puts it, hope and hope. What does that mean? And faith is only good as its object. And if the object is God, right, the creator of all things, thus the controller of all things, because he owns all things, then can I trust him in this? That everything works according to his plan. Everything. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Oftentimes when we walk out the other end, we can see this. I can see difficult times in my life where God used those to refine me, right? Because in the midst of the fire, that's when all of that dross, that ugliness, the sin comes out of my life because I'm driven to the Word to seek understanding and to face whatever it is that I'm facing. And all of a sudden, He starts to expose to me the sinfulness that is within my own life that I need to remove. And all of a sudden, I find that this is a great moment for me because when in the heart of the flames, I also find purification I find holiness and sanctification and I find a rightness with my God and I find that I'm closer to my God he reminds us that in life we can have a far and wide view through which to consider present things and This is what he wants us to focus on. Starting in verse 11, man's life is linked with eternity, but he reminds us of the fact that our understanding is limited. Man was created in the image of God, and he was given dominion over all of creation. That makes us different from every other creature. We are not like the beast, which makes the statement he makes in verse 18 very intriguing, so that they might understand in order for them to see that they are but beasts. What does he mean by that? We know the creation story. We know that man was the pinnacle of God's working order of things. Why is it then that he makes this statement? Verse 19, For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts are the same. How is that so? I mean, we are different. We have eternity in our heart. This links us with heaven. This makes us distinct from my dog, my cat, right? My horse. I'm different from these creatures. I'm a human being. 
One of the things that's amazing about this statement is it explains the reason why we cannot find satisfaction in the achievements of, of the things under the sun. Because we're meant for something bigger than this. We also then realize that we're stuck between eternity and time. And this is our conflict. And when we look at time, it's usually in our time, not God's time. In His time, right? In His time. All things will be beautiful in His time. But God, I need it to happen now. <laughs> my time. My calendar says this happens today. God says, no, no, my calendar says it doesn't happen today. <laughs> the more that I can let go of my control of time and surrender to His control of time, right? Every contingent being needs to understand this, that a contingent being cannot find meaning within itself. It's contingent. I can't find purpose within myself. I am a contingent being. A chair does not define itself. The designer of the chair defines the chair. It's the maker of the thing that defines the purpose of the thing. Whether it's cars, whether it's clothes, whether it's a chair, whatever you look at in life, we are the same we cannot define ourselves. We cannot bring meaning and purpose to our life. Only the designer can do that. Therefore, when we meet our neighbors and encounter them in the everyday square, this is where we need to take them. You want meaning, you want understanding, you want purpose, then you need to look to God because you cannot find it in yourself. It's not how he made it to be. Three things that are important from here is that we have eternal value. It's an amazing truth. Nothing but the eternal God can satisfy us. And we were designed for eternity. That is why the world cannot satisfy us. We can never get enough. We pursue, 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 but it's still emptiness. Look at those who win the lottery and how many of them commit suicide because they think that if I get all of this money, I can buy whatever I want and I can find meaning and purpose in all of that. And what they find is that their life is still just as empty as Solomon found. I found nothing but pain and anxiety, nothing but grief and sleepless nights, even though I have everything, everything under the sun. Human beings in and of themselves cannot satisfy their desire to even know the divine things in life. The amazing thing is that God has enabled us to, to observe, to research, to contemplate. He has designed us to do this, to look at our surroundings and to come to a conclusion that He has made Himself known to us. But we also know that sin plagues this, hinders this, it corrupts this. But He has put us on the most amazing platform <laughs> If anyone's ever watched the movie, the, the Privileged Planet, if you haven't, you need to see the movie. It's amazing. It's amazing that our position in the galaxy sets us up to view everything. God has done this for us. But as we search, we will find enigmas. We will find things that we cannot explain about our existence. We will be frustrated. We will fret. But we are not to fret. We need to accept our limitations and enjoy those things that God graciously provides to us. Look, I don't understand this right now, but I know that God is providing in this moment. I'm going to rejoice in that, and I'm going to move on in life. 
I've survived a lot of things thinking about life this way. Those good things are intended for us to enjoy, as Solomon is going to reflect on. And Estes made the statement, the key to this enjoyment is that God himself has given these activities as gifts to us. Thus, he leads us into verses 12 and following. He brings us these reassuring statements. Man's life can be enjoyable. And he wants us to understand that we can have contentment. Verse 12, I know that there is nothing better than for them to rejoice, to do good in one's lifetime. He is not encouraging us to secular hedonism in any way whatsoever, but we must practice the enjoyment of God's gifts and the fruits of our labor. This is a part of God's design. He has given us things to enjoy in life. And sometimes we live that misery life of a monk that somehow we can't have any enjoyment in this life. God has so graciously provided these things for us. And not only that, but he's also given us the ability to enjoy these things. And no matter how difficult things are, God makes these provisions all the time. Verse 13, the preacher carefully says, enjoyment of life is also a gift from God. So we can, of our labor, find enjoyment in that and the fruit of our labor, but we understand these are gifts from God. And therefore we focus on the giver, not the gift alone. Not only that, but he provides security for us in verse 14. For I know that everything that God does will remain forever. It is final. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing you can take from it. For God has worked that men should fear Him. There's security in this statement. But the security isn't found in the earthly things because Solomon says these things are vanity. They're vapid. They come, they go. You spend your life achieving them and you leave them behind for somebody else who might squander them. But God's actions, they're permanent. They're effective. They are forever. I can't always explain this reality in life. <laughs> and anyone who tries to harmonize the sovereignty of God and the willing choices of man, we have tried from the beginning, and we have not, we will not. These are moments in which God reminds us, I'm God and you're not. <laughs> and you will not understand my things. But I understand this. It's intriguing to me that Solomon is pulling out this great theological presupposition that he's had tucked away in his head. No doubt, this is something that he learned from his father. Solomon is in a stage of transition in chapter 3, and you have to see this, because notice, he, he makes this statement. I ask this question in verse 21. Who knows if the breath of man ascends upward, or the breath of the beast ascends downward to the earth? Well, where does man go when he dies, right? He asks this question. Well, guess what? He's going to answer it in chapter 12, verse 7. But understand, as Solomon is dealing with these things, these theological truths that he's known and seen and understood from his father and in his own lifetime, these things have been suppressed. He walked away from God. He followed these false gods, and he gave in to the influence of his wives. All 700 of them. So he gives in to the influence of this. He's walked away, but now he's coming back and God is now in his purview again. And now he's a part of the equation as he looks at the world around him. And these truths that he was taught younger are now coming to the surface. And so he is coming to a realization of these truths in the midst of this point in his journey. This is amazing. It's amazing that God allows us to take this journey with Solomon. That he would record this for us. 
But the statement of forever indicates that life is transitory, but whatever God does, it is forever. Brown writes this, For Koheleth, an awareness of the limitations of human existence is fundamental to cultivating an awe of God. Do you fear God? This ought to bring fear into our lives. The fact that we cannot change what God has purposed, designed, or brought about should generate a proper fear of God. But see, this doesn't happen so often in our life because we can control things. <laughs> I control my time. I live by the watch. I live by my calendar. I organize my days. I structure my days. I have everything under my control. Then all of a sudden something happens in life and you realize I don't control this. Solomon says this ought to bring you fear. A right kind of fear. You see, these unexplainable moments, these truths, these profound truths, these truths that so are transcendent that we have a hard time even contemplating them, these are the things that should cause our souls to quake. The proper attitude that we must cultivate in our life is a fear of Elohim. And if we fear God, then nothing else, nothing else can make us afraid. Jesus said this to disciples. Don't fear man, because the only thing that man can do to you is take your life. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear the one who can not only take your life, but cast your soul into hell. We must remember this because persecution is coming. We are having to make a stand for the truth more and more. There was a time where we could ride the fence, hide in the corner, Stay out of the spotlight? Not anymore. There is a time where you're going to have to make a defense for the truth of God. And the question you're going to have to ask yourself is, am I afraid of what man can do to me? Or am I afraid of what God can do to me? God's work is perfect and it's final. God's work is eternal. God's work has purpose in reference to man. And then there is the judgment of God. I will leave you with these truths to ponder. But I had to dwell on this one, and I was thinking to myself, whose idea was it for us to go through Ecclesiastes? <laughs> but I was intrigued by this statement in verse 18, dealing with the injustices but God surely has tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. Verse 19, if I translate it literally, it begins with surely. Surely the fate of the sons of men and beasts, right? Their fate is the same. What Solomon tries to help us to understand is the reason why there are injustices in the world is to help us to see that we are beast-like. Live like beasts, die like beasts. And God wants us to help, help us to understand this truth, right? I mean, how many times do we see something evil in the world and we, I just can't believe that, right? Who would do such a thing? 
And sometimes we look at the worst of society and we say, well, I can see why they do that. But what happens when it happens in our neighborhood, when something so ugly and so heinous happens there? And then we look at that and say, how can this be? Solomon says the reason why God allows these things to be and for us to see these things is for us to see ourselves for who we really are. We're capable of doing those kinds of things. Look at the cities around us. Look at the world and the state we're in now. Look at the things that are done, right? We watch the news. We see these things that happen and we say, that is so beast-like. That is so, that's not human. That's inhuman. Solomon's going to dig deeper on this. That is our sin nature. We are all capable of that. Going through Romans, the realization for me is that you have the same sin nature as Charles Manson. Just because you didn't go as far as he went does not mean that you were not capable of that in your sin nature. So contemplate that when you look at the injustices that happen in the world and we say, how can that be? But that's who we are. And that's why we need redemption. And that's why we need the body and blood of Christ. Amen? Dad, would you close in order?